If you've ever thought that it's only been in modern times that the justice system got messy and partial and messed up, and you can disabuse yourself of that notion at any time by reading the account of the trial of Jesus Christ. Scriptures tell us that Jesus went through four different trials on his way to the cross. His first trial was with the Jewish Sanhedrin, kind of the lower court of the land. When he stepped in front of the Sanhedrin and they tried him, and they found him guilty in their eyes of blasphemy and calling himself the Messiah. But because their decision had no sway in their country, they had no ability to sentence Jesus to death, they kicked him upstairs. They kicked him to Pontius Pilate, to the state Supreme Court. And there, Pontius Pilate interviewed him, gave him a personal one-on-one trial, interrogated him. And Pontius Pilate kind of—he was—he was, couldn't see why this man needed to be found guilty. He didn't see where the crime was. But the second that he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, that he was a Galilean, he said, "Ah, oh, I can—I can pass the buck." So he sends Jesus off to King Herod, because Herod was overseeing Galilee. Pontius Pilate was overseeing Judea. And when Jesus goes to that that trial, that third trial over there to King Herod, Herod only asks him to do miracles. And when Jesus refuses, the court just mocks him. But even then, they couldn't find him guilty. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. And he gets there, and Pilate, seeing how tender a situation this is, that this whole Jesus situation is a powder keg ready to blow, that no matter what he decides, what the verdict is, that's going to blow up all around him. Pontius Pilate doesn't even want this case. And so he decides that he would bring Jesus to a fourth court, the court of public opinion. And that's where we pick up our scripture today, our passage from Luke 23, starting in verse 13. The Scriptures tell us this. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, the people. See, getting everybody together here. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence. I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and I'll release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and I'll release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. 
On Good Friday, we not only look to the cross, but we look at how Jesus was led to the cross. All the events that brought us up to this. And in this one passage here from Luke, we see in this, reflected back at us, our faces, not just once, not twice, but three times in the figures of this passage. First of all, we are Pilate, who knew the truth, and yet he bowed to peer pressure. Pilate is a really fascinating character in the account of Jesus, torn between two things, torn between his political survival instincts and the simple naked truth. Absolutely torn. He had probably one of the worst posts, worst ruling posts, I should say, in all of the Roman Empire. He was charged to go down to Judea and put in charge of a very angry, a very rebellious province there. And he knew that at any moment, it was entirely possible that an insurrection would rise. A rebellion so fierce that it might cost him his job or even his life. So you can imagine Pilate was very sensitive to the emotional stability of the city. He always wanted to placate people. He had a population of very resentful Jews that did not want the Romans there. And he was tasked with keeping them calm while keeping law and order in the streets. Jerusalem was already tense the week that Jesus came through the the gates. It was already on the verge of violence. Everybody really expected, in the whole city, expected that when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he was going to march right into the palace and declare himself king. And the entire Jewish populace, for the most part, was ready. They They had weapons hidden in their homes. They were ready to come out and to fight because here, they thought, here was the man who was going to finally kick the Romans out of their country to fulfill his role as Messiah and save them all. And when he didn't do that, the Jewish authorities were really quick to hand Jesus over to Pilate and say, you need to take care of this man. This man was going to lead a rebellion in your city. Well, Pilate didn't want any part of this. We read in all the Gospels, how incredibly torn he was at having to even deal with this case. His wife even came up to him in Matthew chapter 27 and said, you can't, you got to drop this case. You can't handle this. He is an innocent man. I had a, a dream that tormented me about this Jesus. Husband, get away from this. But he couldn't do that. It was his job. He couldn't drop this case. And what's worse is even though he knew Jesus was innocent, there was no easy way to let Jesus off the hook without turning the city against him. Pilate here, even though he's a pagan, he affirms the truthfulness of Jesus Christ many times. But unfortunately, he lacks the conviction, the strength to do what was right. That's the problem right there, isn't it? Sometimes we know what the truth is, we affirm the truth, yet we lack the conviction and the strength to stand up for the truth. For Pilate, he was a pagan politician. He was looking out for numero uno, for himself, what would propel him forward in his status, or at least cause him the least amount of damage. So Pilate takes a trick out of the politician's playbook, a tale, a book that's as old as time. He opens it up, he says, what can I use 
to get me out of this situation. He finds a trick. It's been used before, and so it says, I'll do this. I'm going to offer them a compromise. I'm going to offer them this compromise. If they want to kill him, I want to let him free. The compromise is, I will punish him. I'll flog him. They'll see the blood. They'll hear the screams. They'll know he got his lickings. But then he'll, he can go home. He'll go on his way. He'll be chastised. He'll be a dog with his tail between his legs. The people will let, let this go, and I'll look like the good guy. Certainly that would calm people down. But the crowd would not let him. In John chapter 19, we're even told that the Jewish officials went up quietly to Pilate and they said, if you let this Jesus go, we will go to your bosses and we will tell them that this man let a threat against Caesar go free. He goes, are you blackmailing me? Yes, we are blackmailing you. So Pilate is crushed. He has a weight of popular opinion against him. He has blackmail against him. And yet, truth is out there. What do you do with that? How do you stand up to that? In his case, he didn't. He surrendered. After declaring Jesus innocent three times, he surrendered to them and handed Jesus over to them anyways. We have been Pilate. We have bowed to popular opinion when it turns against us. We have felt that crush of the world that says you you might believe that this is true, but don't take that actual step of doing something about it. Keep your faith to yourself. Keep your belief in Jesus to yourself. Don't actually do what you believe. Don't stand up for the truth. I'm not the only pastor who's looked in dismay as seeing the state of the church in America as it's been sliding down and down over the last couple decades. So many churches, so many denominations have felt that pressure, that weight, that peer pressure from the world crashing against it. And the church has said, you know what, we'll compromise. We'll step down, we'll step back. And they find out for every step they take back in compromise, the world just keeps pushing more and more and more until it gets what it wants. And so the church has taken so many steps back against what it it preaches and believes. There may be a day coming, maybe coming soon, I believe, where we will stand to lose something if we stand for the truth of the gospel. We will stand to lose. We have to make up our minds right now. If we will be Pilate, where we'll privately at home go, we know what the truth is, but I don't really want to stand for that in public because it might actually hurt me. There might be consequences to my faith. Fortunately, we have on our side something Pilate did not. We have a God who can and does give us strength. He gives us a backbone so that when we're feeling that pressure to cave, when we're feeling that pressure to give in, to compromise, God can stand, put his arm around us and say, I'm here with you. I am mightier than the world. You can stand. And we've seen that in so many Christians over the centuries. When the world was crashing against them, they stood and they stood firm. But we are also Barabbas. 
when we read about the repeated innocence of Jesus Christ throughout the trial process, we are also informed that underneath the palace, deep in the dungeons, is a man for whom the guilt is beyond doubt. He is guilty. There's a man sitting there in chains who has been found guilty of two things. He's been found guilty of murder and of inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. If anybody deserved to die, according to Rome at least, it was this man, Barabbas. He was supposed to die. In the other Gospels, not in Luke, but in the other Gospels, we learn that there's this tradition that happened during the festival week of Passover where politicians, being the crafty people that they are, figured that they could score a few political points by bringing out prisoners and pardoning one of them. Kind of like how the president pardons a turkey on Thanksgiving, except real, you know, real stakes here. And they would trot out somebody and say, I'm releasing this man. Look how grand and great I am. It was through this loophole also the pilot said, well, my first idea is not working. They're not going for the compromise, so I have a better idea. I'm going to use this loophole to get Jesus off the hook. And he figures, well, I want to release him to a crowd that was pretty favorable to him. There's got to be people still out there who are still on Jesus' side. So what Pilate does is rather ingenious. Any parent who knows if you want your kid to do something, and they're, they're digging their heels in, and they're saying, no, I don't want to do that thing. A crafty parent goes like this. They say, well, I'm going to give you two options. You can eat your, your peas with some milk, or you can eat your peas and I'll mix it in with some mashed potatoes. The kid didn't want to eat the peas in the first place, but now you've given them two options. Both of those options get you as a parent what you want them to do. And the kid is too busy mulling over both of those options to realize that you're really pulling a fast one over on them. Kids, don't listen to that if you're listening. But that's what Pilate's doing here. He pulls out of the dungeon the one guy that he's absolutely certain beyond reasonable doubt that the Jews would never want to free. Here's a guy that Rome hates, that the Jews know has been stained with blood. He is a murderer. And there's no way respectable Jews would want this guy let free. When here, standing right over here, is a perfectly innocent, nice, beloved man who has taught great things and done great miracles. And the crowds just a week ago were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest. And so he gives us, Pilate gives them two options, but he really wants them to choose just the one thing. Well, that kind of backfired right in his face, didn't it? It had to be an amazing day for Barabbas, though. I can't help but think about this whole situation from his perspective. He had gone from minutes away from having iron spikes driven through his hands and his feet and hung up on a cross to die painfully over the next couple of days. He's gone from minutes away from his execution to being, having his hands shaken and saying, well, you're free to go. Go home. Walk home. I can't help but think that we're all Barabbas. We are all criminals who have been found guilty of the highest treason in the land. We have been found guilty of crimes against the king of the universe. Repeated 
crimes of rebellion. Where we say, I want to live my own life, do my own thing, and I don't need you anymore. We have been found guilty, and the sentence of that is death. Eternal death in hell. And then one day, we're dragged out of our prison, blinking into the sunlight, and we're brought to stand next to Jesus Christ. And we're told that we are being set free because He is going to die in our place. We are Barabbas. I've really often wondered what happened to Barabbas after this passage. We're never told. We don't know. We will never know until we go to heaven what happened to Barabbas. It's very possible he went right back to his life of being a rebel and a criminal. I like to think that maybe he followed Jesus at a distance. And he sat there and he watched the man die his death. And maybe, just maybe, faith started blossoming in his heart. And he had faith in Jesus. And he repented and he glorified God with his life. We don't know the ending of Barabbas' story, but we do know because scriptures tell us that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And they will be saved because the Son of God will take their place, will bleed, will die for them. We are Barabbas, bought with the blood of an innocent sacrifice. But our faces are most certainly in the crowd of that horrible day. When Pilate addressed them, he was addressing pretty much the same crowd that a mere week ago had been cheering and laying down palms and cloaks and cheering as Jesus paraded into Jerusalem, glorifying God. A week ago, the Jewish leaders that hated Jesus so very much wouldn't dare get within a hundred feet of him because they knew if they made a move against Jesus, the crowd would tear them apart. What a difference a week makes. A week later, and most of these people have been completely disillusioned about who Jesus was and what his mission was to do. Not to mention that we're told by Scripture that they've been whipped into a frenzy by the Jewish leaders, by the Pharisees that have been going around circulating rumors about Jesus, doing angry speeches on street corners, and suddenly mob mentality has taken reign in Jerusalem. The mob has turned from loving Jesus to being wild animals, frothing, gnashing their teeth, and demanding His death. That really shouldn't surprise us. Ever since the very first person in the world sinned, the cry has gone up from humanity to God, calling for God's death. When Eve bit into the apple, she screamed, Crucify Him! When Cain killed Abel, he shouted, Crucify Him! When the Hebrews made a golden calf to worship instead of God at the foot of Mount Sinai, they chanted, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! When Moses succumbed to pride, when David came in, gave in to adultery, when Solomon admitted foreign idols into their country, when false prophets lied, 
when Herod killed John the Baptist, when Judas sold his rabbi out for 30 pieces of silver, when Peter disowned Jesus, when Paul arrested Christians, each and every one of them bellowed at the top of their lungs, Crucify him! And this cry has continued throughout all of history up to this very day. Jesus Christ is laughed at in our culture. He is mocked. His name is a swear word. His status is demoted. His teachings are branded as hate. His grace is seen as intolerant. And the world shouts, crucify Him. And some of us shout right along with it. Yet as Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we shouted, crucify Him, Christ died for us. While we were shouting that. What glorious love lies in that statement. That a God would look upon people who are literally spitting mad, screaming for His death, hating Him with every fiber of their sin-soaked being. And He loved them so much He died for them. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of screaming, crucify Him with every sin that I do in my life. I would much rather my actions reflect love toward the One who has died for me rather than hate. Tonight, I want to invite us all to sit here at the foot of the cross. I'd like us to reflect with our mind's eye the Savior stretched out, groaning in physical and spiritual torment. Tonight, let's realize what our cries of crucify Him have brought. And let us understand what this day, what His death, did for us. Let's take some time to be with him tonight.